doesn't seem like a lot, but you're going to be kind of hopefully pleasantly surprised about um, it's not a difficult chunk of scripture and that we really can uh, get through this. So John 12 and starting at verse 1, follow along with me because I want you to get it fresh in your mind and then we'll go through the various sections. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and had charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in there. So Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9, when the crowd, the large crowd of the Jews, learned that Jesus was there, and again, where? Up at Bethany, verse 1, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Otherwise, they already are planning to put Jesus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took the branches of, branches of palm leaves and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey, a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Today I want to call the message, because our PowerPoint, we're having problems with the projector this morning, would have shown you that. I titled this message, A Passion to Follow Jesus. You know, we've all heard the phrase, um, the odds are against you, or the odds are stacked against you. 
And I don't probably need to define what that means. It means, basically, is that either what you want or what you are trying to do, there's a good chance it's not going to happen. And, of course, there's variance of odds, aren't there? There could be low odds, and maybe that will happen. There could be super high odds, and so forth. You know, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. I actually went down yesterday because I know in a few weeks that capsule will be gone. And it's amazing. Only a few cities got it. We were one that got to have it for a while. And it's the actual capsule that the astronauts, the three of them, went to the moon in. And it's pretty, I mean, you could either say, well, there's not much to see. And you're right. It's more just about history. But it's a pretty amazing thing. And talk about odds, right, in our space program and the things we've done. It took years, they say, and millions and millions of dollars um, to lower the odds, that's how I'd put it, to lower the odds that that mission would succeed. I came across some interesting facts about it yesterday, that the three astronauts um, were the ones that we think were the first on the moon, but what we don't know is the estimate there were 400,000 other people that were involved in the success of that mission. There were scientists, there were engineers, and of course, working for years, uh, technicians and workers of various kinds scattered across the United States that actually got those three guys on the moon. Armstrong, famous name, you know him, he was one of them, one of the astronauts, was convinced they could land wasn't convinced they could land the lunar module on the moon and gave it a 50-50 chance. And you could read more about this, but what was going on there is there were a lot of the things that they were not able to test. We didn't have the atmosphere of the moon. We didn't have all those variables that went into that. And so even though they had rehearsed it and planned for it, they really didn't know, is this thing going to actually land correctly and get out of there correctly? And then I like this one. Aldrin, who was one of the astronauts, became the first person to take communion on the moon. And I bet you didn't know that. He actually read from John 5, 5. You could read it later about the vine and abiding in Christ. But he literally took communion, brought the supplies up and took communion on the moon. So that I thought was pretty cool. But the idea of odds, where I'm going with this, is the idea of odds stuck out to me in our passage this morning being against someone or something. And if you look at verse 19 again, we'll go through it in just a minute, but the Pharisees say to one another, they're talking amongst themselves when they say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so from their perspective, the odds were against them. They were doing everything in their power they could to put an end to Jesus and this movement. But as you picked up hopefully in our reading, and it'll come out more, they weren't succeeding. More and more people were coming to Christ and giving their life to Christ. And so for the sake of the gospel, it would seem that they were going to win, the Pharisees, that it couldn't succeed. And the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders in general, they really were working nonstop now. As you saw, they're going to include Lazarus to get rid of him and to stop the spread of the good news that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and he is the Messiah. And yet they didn't realize they were dealing with God himself. And if anyone can say odds don't matter, it's God. He can do that, right? And we're not going to take time to go into that, but you just think of creation. 
you think of everything, and scientists have their biggest problems because it's that odds thing. And they just go, well, this could never happen, or that could never happen. But it did, and that's because in God's economy, odds don't matter. And so God being one who can work against all odds, again, that can encourage us this morning. Just think of your life. What's on your mind right now? What's on your heart right now? What type of things are you going through? Remember, you've given your life to one who really odds don't matter. He is in charge and his will is going to be done. The other thing, and this is the main thing that I want us to see and hopefully it will resonate with us, in many that many were coming to Christ, and I'll show you, it's in this section. They had a passion to live for him. They had surrendered their lives to him. And the Pharisees saw this, and that's when they said in verse 19, the world has gone after him. And again, the world, if we're going to be technical, hadn't. But hundreds and thousands were going after him, and they, they realized it. And in each section, we see that those who saw, who, they saw who Jesus was, and they choose to fall and live for him. We'll hit on Mary. Joel hit on it more. I'm not going to hit on it much this week. But Mary, who anointed Jesus' feet, what did she desire? To follow Jesus. And that act that she did was just not an act of personal witness uh, and our, our personal worship. But it was more than that. It, it spoke of how much, how dedicated she was to him. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. He was a follower of Christ. Many in the crowd who welcomed Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, they believed in Christ. And those called Greeks who wanted to see Jesus and speak to Jesus, we see that they wanted to find out who he was. And I'm sure some of them ended up following him. And so I pray this morning that will encourage us and will spur us on. Amen? So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you'd remind me and you'd remind all of us that we have time in this place, Lord, to worship you. So often, Lord, we give you a box. Sunday mornings, it's usually an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 15 minutes if we're going to include worship. And Lord, help us not to do that. We want to give you time that we worship you. We want to give time now, Lord, to your word that you will speak to us, and then we want to give you more time to worship you, Lord. And so this period, this block of time is important. It can be so uplifting, so encouraging, so impacting beyond today, Lord. And so let us have ears to hear, I pray this morning. Speak to us, Father, in Jesus' name. Now, in verses 1 through 8, I'm not going to read that again because we just read it and hopefully that one you got in your head. Six days before the Passover feast, a major feast that the Jews were required to attend, Jesus came to Bethany, okay? And you can see the map behind me. No, you can't see the map behind me. (laughs) I can see the map behind me in my head, but all you need to do is, can you picture Jerusalem in your mind? And then go two miles to the east, and you're at Bethany. And you that have been there, you know then you go up the Mount of Olives and down the other side a little ways, and it's there. So it's only a two-mile distance between Bethany and Jerusalem. And probably at least 90% of us in this room could make that trek, right? Maybe three miles we go, no, can't do it. But I could do the two-mile. 
And as Joel shared, Jesus was there, and this is where Mary anointed Jesus' feet with that pure nard. And my mind just kind of goes, explodes of what that must have been like. To see that, to smell that, and everything else, just the scene in itself. And it was an act of love and devotion, no doubt, um, flowing out of Mary's heart. But it also then pointed, and that's what Jesus or John brings out in this passage, it pointed to Jesus' death and his glorification and the coming now that he'll enter into of what is known as the final hour. And the final hour isn't limited to 60 minutes. It's a period of time. It's a short period of time that will take us from now up to his crucifixion. And John uses it to lead us into the death of the king, of death of Christ. And it pointed to Jesus' death and glorification. So either knowing or being led of the Spirit, Mary did it in anticipation of Jesus' death and his burial. And don't miss in this, and this is something important, you see the dedication of Mary, don't you? You understand that she offered her best in in the nard that she brought that was equivalent to a year's salary. And so just think of you and I giving up a year's salary and the implications of giving that up to worship Jesus with it, see? And that shows you what she did. But she, what it means is she wanted to show her dedication. She was offering her best, if you will. It was a gift that expressed her highest gratitude and devotion. And really, not just Mary, but Martha and Lazarus, I believe, risk all they had to honor Jesus and show their loyalty, knowing the risk of doing so, right? Anybody that chose to follow Jesus was at risk of being put to death or at least in prison or beaten. And so they had believed in him and they desired to live to him. And that's really our theme for the day, this passion to live and to follow Jesus. I appreciate about a week or so ago, me and Kyle were talking after Wednesday night Bible study and Kyle pointed out to me because I was talking about where I was going to head And he pointed out to me that oftentimes in the Gospels, you get these contrasts. And that's what you have here, don't you? You have on the one hand in the first section, you got the incredible love of Mary for Jesus. But then what else do you have in that passage? You have the incredible greed of Judas or the lack of love for Jesus and Judas. And don't make a mistake about that. Judas was a thief. If you look at verse 6, it says so. One author I read said, in this story, John makes it plain that Judas was not an unfortunate, misguided person. Oftentimes, especially liberal scholars will portray Judas in that way. But this author said, he was inherently an evil thief who had no concern for the poor. And that's what Jesus says when you have the poor there. If you're really concerned with the poor, Judas, don't worry. They're not going away. You'll have all types of opportunity to show that concern. But of course, that wasn't his concern. He was taking money out of their, their, their money box, if you will, and giving it to himself. And so both had passion, but we want the passion of Mary, don't we, in this thing? Well, we go on, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there at Bethany, where Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they came not only on account of him, 
but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans. And so you got to remember, John's writing after the fact. We don't know how large the crowd was, but sometimes he just says crowds. Other times he says a large crowd. So we think it's probably pretty good size. But the chief priests, and whether they were part of that crowd or not, probably not. They probably heard what was going on, and then they made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. In other words, going away from the Pharisees, going away from what they were being taught by that, and they were going after Jesus. And John doesn't tell us who the large crowd is, just that they were Jewish. It's probably safe to say that some of those would be the ones who will fall away from Jesus, flee from Jesus, probably were really not true followers when Jesus gets arrested. Remember? It, the crowds thin out really fast. But others were true believers. And so we know the disciples were part of them. But we also know that the disciples weren't just limited to the 12. There were other people there that were true believers. And so they came and they seen who Jesus was, either having their life changed by him or wanting their lives changed. And let me hit the pause button this morning. As I was going over my notes this morning, I felt the Lord told me, pause there for a minute and remind the church this morning that we serve a God and we believe in a Savior who changes lives. And I hope you haven't forgot that. Maybe you are here today And even though you haven't said it, maybe you're just thinking about it and you go, this is interesting, this gets brought up, but you need change in your life. I'm telling you, don't seek it in any other way or any other person than Jesus Christ. And you that know Christ, is there that change in your life you still seek or that you know he still wants to do? Don't let go of that. Desire it, pray about it. You know, I was watching, Wink and I were watching a show the other day And um, I can't remember what show it was. It was a a news thing. She'll remind me later because she reminded me yesterday about it. And it was about this guy that was an auto mechanic. And he decided he wanted to become a doctor. And so really at an older age, I think he was like in his late 30s or 40s, he decided to become a doctor. And for nine years, he put himself to it. And he became a doctor. And they showed him practicing. And I told Wink, I said, that really spoke to my heart. As I get ready to say, to end one aspect of my life, pastoring this church for the last 27 years, I kind of thought, huh, I need a seven-year, eight-year, nine-year goal. What can I do next, Lord? And so stay tuned, right? We'll see. But I think that's an important thing that we understand. So anyway, um, we see that they wanted this change in their life. And so they made the trip to see both Jesus and Lazarus. And don't read too much into that. Would they want to see Lazarus more? No, I just think it's natural. They want to see Jesus. They'd never seen anything like this before. They'd never seen what they believed was the power of God working through an individual that he, they sensed and many believed he is our Messiah. But they also wanted to see Lazarus. And you would too, wouldn't you? If you heard that there was this guy and he's down in downtown Edmonds today at one o'clock that was literally dead and raised to life, many of us would go down there. Now, we might be real skeptical and cynical and we go, I ain't going down there. That's crazy stuff. But that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to see it. They wanted to see who he was. And again, you see the contrast, don't you? 
You see the crowd seeking Jesus, but then the contrast of that is the Jewish authorities who want to kill Jesus. So often the scriptures do this, and John likes to do this as he contrasts it. And a good question to ask yourself, and anytime you study the word, it's a good question, is where do you see yourself in the passage? You want to know about the Word. I try very hard to teach you. I Hopefully you can go out on a Sunday, and when I'm done, you can say, oh, he reminded me some things I knew or I didn't know that about the passage. But if we don't apply it, then we might as well just shut our Bibles right now and leave because we want to ask, what is it saying to me? You know, and that's an important thing, a question to ask ourselves. And here it is with those who came and believed and with great, were those against Jesus. And so start asking yourself, who do I live for? Go ahead. I want you to think that through now, the rest of the message. Who do I live for? Who am I living for? How do I know? To what degree? What level am I living for Christ if that's what I'm doing? You know? And that we want to live that way. Listen to Francis Chan. It was, a, you know, I, I really don't do this, but these coats came to me the other day. I said, well, this is exactly the thing I'm going to be teaching on. Francis Chan says this, and I so wish it was up on the screen because I know you retain more if you see it, but I'll read it slowly. He says, there is still a need for those of us nestled deep within the Christian bubble to look beyond the status quo and the critically and critically assess the degree to which we are really living biblically. Then he goes on, it is true that God may have called you to be exactly where you are, but it is absolutely vital to grasp that he didn't call you there so you could settle in and live your life in comfort and superficial peace. And what a great thing for us to ponder. Lord, am I following you? What degree am I following you? Is there a passion in my life? Or do I need you, Lord, to pull, pour a gallon of Holy Spirit gasoline on my life today and light it, right? And get me excited once again about the Lord. And so ask yourself these questions. Well, we go on, verse 12. Verse 12 says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast now realized two large crowds. John's talking about there was a large crowd that went over to Bethany to see Lazarus and Jesus, but now there was a large crowd that the crowd that had come to the feast of Passover heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. We could say, you see, we are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after this guy. And so all four Gospels include what we know as the triumphal entry. It's in Matthew 21. It's in Mark 11. It's in Luke 19, it's in John 12, like we're here today. And that shows us it's important. This is a major event that God wanted all his writers to include. 
And really, understand, if you read all four, then you get the full picture. If you know them enough, you realize that John doesn't give us a lot of details. Matthew, the others, will give us different details. You put them all four together, you have the whole picture of the thing. And so our Bible titles this section, The Triumphal Entry, and they do so because it is the beginning of Jesus' ultimate triumph over the grave. And so in a very superficial way, it is a triumphal entry for the people. They think our king is coming. Um, the prophet is coming. He's gonna, we're going to make him king now. And he's going to overthrow Rome and Rome's yoke upon us, right? But really, that wasn't what was being talked about. And so when we call it that, it's because it's an ultimate triumph that Jesus will have over the grave and over sin. Nowhere does it say in the passages or use the word triumph. And certainly the days ahead are anything but that, aren't they? Jesus is going to get arrested. He's going to go through one of the worst beatings a person could go through that many never survived, and then he'll be crucified on the cross. And so in many ways, it is the opposite of what we think of triumph. But John's account is short. It's almost like it's bare bones, and I think it's because this is what I concluded. I think it's because that John in his gospel wants you and I who read it, it from the, the day it went into print, if you will, to now, he wants us to see who Jesus is. He isn't necessarily worried sometimes about this detail or that tale. He wants his readers to see who Jesus is. And I think it's because that that is such a key thing, that it's Israel king, Israel's king and the savior of the world. In the same, it's the same thing with the signs. Remember in John's gospel, he never calls them miracles, like Lazarus being the raised to the dead. He calls them signs because it changes it when it's a miracle. Of course, hopefully people ask, well, how did it happen? Who did it? But when it's a sign, you ask, what's the sign for? And it's, you realize to show people Christ. And so I think that's why John doesn't give us that many details. He just wants the readers to see that this is your king. This is the savior of the world that others would see Jesus coming in. And so the crowds in Jerusalem being large, and they're there because of the Feast of Passover, heard he was coming, and they greeted him. And as he made his descent down the Mount of Olives. They covered the road, John tells us, with palm branches. It says they were cutting them off, and there's palm trees there, and laying them on the road. And again, some of you have been there. But if you haven't been there, just picture tones of brown, light brown, and tones of gray stones and things like that. And then all of a sudden you throw green on top of that, right? And all of a sudden you get this beautiful contrast. And Matthew tells us that, that Matthew adds, the people spread their coats. And really the word there is the old King James words, cloaks, but it really refers to just clothing. But they spread that. And so my mind just kind of goes crazy. Can you do this with me? that all of a sudden there's this path that people traveled on all the time coming down the Mount of Olives over to the city of Jerusalem and now it's being covered with palm branches of green and probably various shades of green and people's coats and clothing type of thing. And so, you know, most of them could have been white or brown or tan, but no doubt there'd be colorful clothing too. And then the change of the clip and clap of the donkey and the walking of the people would change too. And so they came out and they did that. And Jesus enters the city. Matthew says the whole city was stirred up saying, this is the prophet Jesus. 
And so their fervor was at a pitch. They were so hungry to have their Messiah come and be relieved of the oppression of Rome. It would seem many believed that he was king. Israel had longed for this, even though we know many would fall away, like I already said, when he was arrested and agree they would change, right? The same people that welcomed him on this day, no doubt some of them were the same people that were yelling in the crowd, crucify him, see? Mixed people. People are the same way today. And yet not everybody was like that. And John cites these two Old Testament passages, one out of Psalm 118, one out of Zechariah 9. Psalm 18, it says, save us. I'm going to read Psalm 18 for you. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now listen to this. Psalm 118, the estimate was penned in 1044 B.C. Zechariah 9, the whole book was between 520 B.C. and 470 B.C. And so over a thousand years, these verses were put down. And now you see the fulfillment of that coming true. Talk about odds. But it's God's word. And God's word doesn't care about odds. It is the odds breaker, if you will. One thing to note is, again, so we see that. And again, I think that should speak to us. Today, it's like we are becoming such a feeling-oriented culture that oftentimes we don't realize that there are things like prophecies, fulfillment of prophecies, archaeology, discoveries, etc. Those things are important. They verify the truth and that this is God's Word. And so that is an important thing. But the other thing I want you to notice is the devotion and worship of the people and what we should possess as well. They shouted, Hosanna. And again, I know not everybody in this crowd are going to be, end up being true followers, but they shouted that word. Hosanna means save. It means save now, help now, save us please is the idea. It's an explanation of praise implying rulership. And that's what the people are asking. You know, I thought that was interesting. When we praise God, are we also saying, Lord, rule my life? Oftentimes we praise God, and I'm speaking to myself, but am I also saying, you rule my life, Lord. You are my ruler, see? That's what the word means there. So they shouted that unto the Lord. And, and what an amazing thing. The passage in Zechariah is God's word to Israel, right? If you think about it, it says, Rejoice, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. So it's God's word to Israel saying, Your king is coming. He is righteous. He's having sal he has salvation with him. He is humble. And I think we could take this and we could apply it to ourselves that we would say, oh, save us, our king. Come, king, and rule over me. And you say, well, Scott, I've done that. And I agree. I understand that. I'm not trying to trip anybody up and say, well, that didn't last. You got to do it again. But I think it's good to do it again. I think often we need to tell the Lord, save me, Lord. Again, what are you going through? What type of things are we going through? You know, it's funny. I was telling somebody this morning um, that um, at times my mind is kind of going in strange places knowing that 
by the end of September, what I've done for 41 years is going to come to an end. And I'm looking forward to it. So I don't want any of you to come up to me and, well, because you said that, that's reason you shouldn't do this, okay? But I just, it's just the nonsense that goes on in your brain at times and the second guessing that goes on in your brain at times, right? And, and you just got to say, Lord, save me. You know, help me, Lord. And so we all are going through things and we want to always be at that point no matter what we go through. We might have said, Lord, save me, give me salvation. But now, Lord, would you save me? Would you rule over my life? Would you let their praise come from this thing that I find myself in? And he will, see? And so we should say that to the Lord. Well, the last section, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks and so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And all types of people, they say, would have been doing this. Philip went to Aunt, told Andrew, and they together, Andrew and Philip, went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, Sure, bring him over. <laughs> no. Yeah, this is one of those passages where you just go, hey, it seems like he didn't answer the question. But here's what he says. Jesus answered them. Well, let, hang on. Let me, let me talk about the first part first. So John records this other group, these Greeks, that came to the Passover, and they wanted to see Jesus. Now, let me quote a couple guys for you. It's easier than me just re-saying what they said. Edwin Blum says this about the Greeks here. The mention of Greeks is significant. They were the wanderers of the ancient world and the seekers of truth. These Greeks were probably God-fearing fears who attended Jewish synagogues and feasts. Their coming was symbolic of the coming of the Gentiles to, the worship, to worship God through Christ. And Merrill Tenney adds this, they were not Hellenistic Jews, but Gentile Greeks who had joined the Jewish pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Probably they were inquirers who had become interested in the Jewish faith, but had not, but had not become full proselytes. They may have come from Galilee or the Decapolis, the ten Gentile cities, generally east of the Galilee and the Jordan, stretching out from Damascus all the way north to, Philip, Phil, to Philadelphia. Jesus had followers from these cities and in his early ministry and his reputation must have spread among them. And so that's who was also there coming. And again, I love it because it shows us, it reminds us two things, the power of God to draw man unto himself. And it also shows us that the gospel isn't restricted to just certain individuals or certain classes of people. The gospel is for the whole world, right? And so true to his emphasis in his gospel, John shows us that they were coming and they wanted to find out about Jesus. And Jesus' answers, answer is not what I think Andrew and Philip probably expected. He says there, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it um, for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we see often in the Gospels that Jesus seems to not answer the question that is being asked him. And again, all I would say to that is that Jesus is not going to let anything or anybody stop God's will or God's timing. And he knows now 
that hour is in, the clock is ticking, and he knows what's going on. He speaks here of a grain of wheat falling into the ground. And only then, and you could talk about a grain of wheat, you could talk about a seed of a flower, um, maybe you are a seed planter. Um, I love to plant zinnias. They're a beautiful flower. I didn't get to this year, but I will next year. And But we know when that seed goes into the ground, it comes forth. And I have literally this bag of zinnia seeds that were from two years ago from my flowers, that this one flower comes up. It'll have multiple heads, and every head has hundreds of seeds in it. And so that's what Jesus is saying here, that this wheat fall into the ground, and only when it dies will it produce the crop that it's intended to produce. But the, the, issue, the, the lesson is mankind. Mankind must die to self. You must die to self. I must die to self. Death to self is the way of life. There is no other way. Jesus and living for him must be our largest and our main concern. One has to follow him if they say he is their Lord and Savior. And that's the thing I want us to grapple with this morning. Think about this morning. Um, Take with us today and think about it through this week. Let these words in a good way haunt you and come up in your memory that, Lord, how am I following you? What is it like? What does my following you look like, Lord? And we want to do that in our life. And so our passage, we see people who had a passion to follow Jesus. Mary, who anointed his feet. And we can include Martha and Lazarus there. Uh, Those who came to see both Jesus and Lazarus. And I know there were worshipers there. I know there were people that believed in in spite of the the others that didn't and in spite of the risk of them believing. The crowd that gathered in Jerusalem when Jesus entered that day and these Greeks. And it leaves us with this question. Are we seeking him? Are we going after him? You know, two questions as we close. Have you lost your life? uh, Have you lost your life for Jesus' sake? You know, it says if you aren't willing to lose your life, you will lose it. If you don't give your life over to Jesus where you find eternal life, you will lose it for eternity. But have we done that? You might be here today, and that's the question for you. Have you said, Lord, take my life? I want to lose it. I want to let go of it. I want you to be that. And you need to surrender your life too. And I think this will fit most of us. If you have, where is your passion for him today? Where is your passion for him now? What did that passion and that title of follower of Jesus, how did that, what did that look like last week? How did you see it? How didn't you see it, see? And all I'm saying is this, you know I never have been one to you know, take the Bible and hammer you over the head with it. But what we want to do is let it speak to us and to hear the still small voice of the Spirit saying, do you hear Do you hear? You're letting go of some stuff. And you need that passion back in your life to follow him. It's a great challenge. Worship team, come back up. It's a great challenge for us as we get older, isn't it? You that are aging, we're all aging. But you that are older, it's a great challenge, isn't it? We find all types of changes going on in our life. But I think all of us want to have that passion and that desire. And so we're going to close with some worship. And would you please... um, Take advantage of the time. 
you know, worship, you know, in the songs, but also just have some conversation with the Lord this morning. If you need prayer, I'll be up here. If any of you elders, if there's other people that come up and you realize I can't pray for them all, would you just come up and help me out? But let's just take this time and take advantage of this time. You know, it's a great thing. Why put it off? If the Lord has spoken to us, if we have felt kind of his touch and his conviction this morning about something, why would we put it off? Because you know what happens when you put it off? It just, the urgency of it just disappears. And so we've got time now to not let it disappear and just say, Lord, you've spoken to me in this way and I come to you right now and I pray. And you know what? He hears your prayers. He loves to commune with us. And so take advantage of that time this morning. Matt, go ahead. Thank you.